Christy Mock, please to the book of Judges, chapter 13. Chapter 13. The story of uh, Samson is one of the strangest in the entire Bible. If you've, uh, if you've had a chance to really read this, or, or I've read it several times, here's a man who seemed to have a lot of privileges, a lot of advantages that really could have and probably should have set him up to be one of the greatest judges of all time. This is the story of a life of a man who was so richly anointed with the potential for blessing and victory, and yet his life instead is marked with some disgrace and some spiritual defeat. He seemed to have everything that he needed from God to be uh, to be used mightily by God. Samson was to be the leader in Israel. He was to be God's instrument to deliver his people. But unfortunately, his walk with God was erratic at the very best and marked with far too infrequent contact with God, to say the very least. How could it be that somebody with all the advantages given to them by God, could so easily fall short of such outstanding potential. How could that be? Well, that's what we want to look at here tonight as we meet our newest judge, Samson the Nazarite. And let me address this as well. Just because Samson is difficult for us to understand does not mean that we should easily dismiss the account of Samson and Judges. And if you know this or not, but uh, the story of Samson takes up 20% of the book of Judges. One guy. Remember Gideon? He had about four chapters or so, four or five chapters. So you've got the same with Samson. So there's something here. You know, when we see that God has given him that much time, that much space, there's something there that God wants us to glean from the life of Samson and make sure that we learn from that and then apply it to our lives. Now, it would be most helpful for you when we go through the book of Samson, if you could kind of just put aside all of your Sunday school understandings of who Samson is, okay? The cartoon character is about 20 years old, rippling with muscles, okay? You can just kind of set him aside because if you could do that, you're going to have a better understanding of who Samson really is biblically than just what our Sunday school picture of him is because we normally just talk about his incredible strength and his long hair and so on. But when you really dig into the book of Judges, it's not quite that picturesque. So uh, we need to glean from, from his life what God would have us glean from it and then apply it. And those are lessons we hope that have helped Christians in their own walks through the ages, if you can really dig into that. So hopefully you found your place now in Judges chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. Before we do, let's go to the Lord in prayer, asking to bless our time together in his word. Heavenly Father, thank you again for just a wonderful day, wonderful time of fellowship, a wonderful time of worship. I pray, Lord, that you would uh, bless our time here even this evening, Lord, again, as we open up your wonderful truth. May we have uh, ears, Lord, to hear and eyes to see your wonderful truth. And may we hold it in our hearts forever. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So we're in Judges chapter 13, verse 1. Let's look at that. Now the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord, so that the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines forty years. 
Well, after the depth of death of Jephthah, remember that's our last significant judge. Uh, Israel once again, look at that right away in verse one, did evil in the sight of the Lord. Now this is the seventh time now that we have read this very same thing, right? Let's just refresh ourselves. Go to Judges chapter 2 for a second. Judges chapter 2, verse 11. And here we see it here. Then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. Then go to Judges chapter 3, verse 5. Here we go again. The sons of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and they took their daughters for themselves as wives and gave their own daughters to their sons and served their gods. And we looked at that, didn't we? That was something God had explicitly said, do not do when you go into that land. And yet here they are. Verse 7, the sons of Israel did what? They did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asheroth. Go to, go to uh, verses 12 in that same chapter, chapter 3, here again. Now the sons of Israel did, again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. You kind of get a picture here. And he gathered to himself the sons of Ammon and Amalek, and he went and defeated Israel, and they possessed the city of the palm trees. The sons of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Then go to chapter 4. And here you again see in verse 1, the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold him into the hand of Jabin, the king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. And the commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harasheth Hagayim. The sons of Israel cried to the Lord, for he had 900 iron chariots, and he oppressed the sons of Israel severely for 20 years. Again and again. There's like another one in chapter 6 in Gideon's time. And then again another one in chapter 10, verses 6 through 9. This time, the Lord gives them into the hands of whom? The Philistines. The Philistines. Now, who are the Philistines? We looked at them, remember, when we were going through First and Second Samuel, but that was a long time ago. So let's just remind ourselves who the Philistines are. The Philistines were a seafaring people from the area around Greece and the Aegean Sea, up in that area. And they were run out of their own country and landed in northern Africa, where they decided it would be a good idea to attack Egypt and take over their land. That didn't work out so well. And they were beaten badly by the Egyptians and forced to flee again, so they hopped in their boats. This time they landed in southern Palestine, where they established five major cities. Remember, the Philistines have five cities, and they have five lords over each of those five cities. Does anybody remember what all those are? Ashdod, I heard somebody say. Gath. Ekron. Gaza. And Ashkelon. Okay, those are the five cities. Ashdod, Ashkelon, Gath, Ekron, and Gaza. So our text tells us that the Philistines oppressed them for 40 years. Now, remember, we're looking at these for 18 years, 20 years, 40 years now. They oppressed them or ruled over them. In fact, this 40-year uh, period of oppression will not end until the Battle of Mizpah in 1 Samuel chapter 7. 
Think about that. Think about they're in the time of Judges now, right? All the way to David's time. 40 years are there. And then the Philistines are not finally defeated until the end of King David's reign in 2 Samuel chapter 5. It's hard to believe, but they they really, really uh, uh, had their way over Israel. Now, what's so interesting about this Philistine oppression here is that in every other instance where somebody was oppressing Israel, what would happen? So you had sin, then you had servitude, and then supplication. Do you see any supplication in this account from the Israelites? Now it's actually missing in this here, right? There's no crying out to God for help from the oppression of the Philistines. In every other instance, we could go back and look at chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 6, chapter 10. Each of those that have that same cycle again and again and again, right? Sin, servitude, supplication, salvation, silence. Goes again and again and again, all the way around. But no cry for deliverance from the Lord. Now, how could you have somebody who is oppressing you for 40 years and never once cry out to the Lord? Where in every other time, even half that time, you were crying out to the Lord. What is the difference with the Philistines? Why didn't that happen? Why is there no cry for deliverance? No cry for salvation? There's no cry for God to even send a deliverer to save them. Why is that? How could Israel be oppressed by the Philistines longer than any other oppressor and yet never cry out for deliverance even once? How could that happen? Well, the answer is really twofold. First, the Philistines' tactic was not brute force like the other oppressors. Do you know how the Philistines became oppressed, how they would uh, took over and oppressed Israel? They didn't try to come in and conquer them militarily. They harassed them from time to time. They did different things, but that really wasn't their MO. You know what they really did? They had a tactic that was much more effective and much more long-lasting than the other oppressors. Here's what they would do. They would conquer through assimilation. Now, what does that mean? It kind of sounds like something from a Star Trek movie, doesn't it? Like, a, like the Borgs are assimilating you in. What do I mean by assimilation? Well, the Philistines worked very hard to do whatever they needed to do to get the sons of Israel to marry their daughters. And once the families were joined together in marriage, soon after syncretization would happen. What do I mean by that? I mean, they would start abandoning the things of God for peace in the family. And before you know it, they looked a lot more like the Philistines than they did of God's chosen people. And pretty soon, the things of God and the commands of God became less and less important to the Israelites as time marched on. So much so that there became very little difference between the habits and the lifestyles between these two people. As a matter of fact, turn to Judges chapter 10, verse 6, because you kind of get a little glimpse of this back before, that this was already starting to happen even before. A little glimpse of that. Look at Judges chapter 10, verse 6. Then the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord, served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the sons of Ammon, and the gods of the Philistines. See, they were already starting to worship, at idol worship, 
Start already starting to move into that. There was a total abandonment of worship of God, which resulted in this sevenfold idolatry, including worship of the gods of the Philistines. But there's another reason here, too, as well, that they weren't really so upset by the Philistines ruling over them. The second reason is, is that the Philistines had learned to make iron. And so thus they made farm implements out of iron, which made their life a lot easier, which means that they yielded more from their crops, which means they made more money. And who did they buy these farm implements from? The Philistines, who were quite happy to have this arrangement where the Israelites were spending their money buying metal farm implements and weapons, incidentally, made of iron instead of wood. So Israel came to rely upon these farm implements and greatly increased their yield and profits from their land. It was a money-making venture. Both sides were very happy with this. Things are going well. We've got money in our pockets. Hey, this, this under the oppression of the Philistines is not so bad, is it? I mean, our quality of our life is better. So they were, a time, they were enjoying a time of great affluence, and they liked it. And the rule of Philistines was not cruel. It was not overbearing like previous oppressors. So the Israelites soon accepted their rule with apathy. What does that mean? They didn't care. They just didn't care. And they responded in weakness. They just assimilated right in and started to look very much so like the Philistines. They assimilated so well into the Philistine worldview and lifestyle that they didn't even care if they were delivered. They didn't think that they didn't even need to cry out to God because things were going so well in their minds. In fact, a couple chapters from now in chapter 15, we'll see where they actually resent Samson's efforts to get rid of the Philistines. They're not happy that he's trying to get rid of them. Again, not once do we see the children of Israel cry out for deliverance. Not even once. And the only army that we see Israel assemble with their new iron weaponry is not against the Philistines, but one, the one that they assemble to arrest Samson to turn him over to the Philistines so they can have peace. That's the only thing they use the weapons for with their army. Not against the Philistines, but against one of their own for trying to deliver them from the Philistines. So the issue that was at the core of this apathy, this not caring, and at the core of this idolatry and the apathy was that Israel had compromised with the world. They had compromised to their culture around them because it was easier to assimilate into that than it was to follow God's laws. They had reasoned by themselves that assimilation with the world and taking a little broader view of the world was far better for them personally, it was better for them financially, it was easier spiritually than it was to trust God. Now, how did Israel get to this point? How did that happen? What has caused the Israelites to be so assimilated that they don't even recognize that they have completely fallen away from God? They don't even cry out. Were they consciously deciding that they were doing evil and decided, hey, we're going to do it anyway? We don't care? We can find the answer to that again in verse 1. It says here, notice that they did evil. They did what was evil in the sight of whom? But notice that it was not evil in their sight. Notice what the text says. 
It says evil in the sight of the Lord, not evil in their own eyes. They had grown to be so assimilated with the world that by their own perception, what they were doing was perfectly fine. They had, they had so bought in that this was a better lifestyle for themselves, regardless of what God had to say, so much so that it had become the norm for them. And they didn't go around thinking, this is evil, but I'm going to do it anyway. But in God's eyes, what they were doing was evil. That teaches us a couple things then about the definition of sin, doesn't it? Notice that sin is what was evil in God's eyes, not man's eyes. That means that man is not the standard for what is sin and what is not sin regardless of what the world says. Many in the world today have set up an arbitrary standard for sin. It's kind of a sliding scale of sin, if you like. What do I mean by that? Some think that sin is anything that violates your personal conscience. So if you do something but it doesn't violate your conscience, that's not sin. But if I do it and it violates my conscience, then that's sin to me, but it's not sin to you. So that way you're free to do what you want to do, and I'm free to do what I want to do. But, you know, your conscience can be seared through repeated willful acts of disobedience and sin. And your conscience may be a great warning light that you're about to sin, but it falls short as the absolute standard for the definition of sin. Others think that we develop our own personal standard for sin. You might have heard somebody say something like this. Well, I don't think that's sin. So I'm okay with that. Maybe sin to you. It's not sin to me. Of course, that works well when you're able to do what you want to do, right? But what about when somebody does something against you that you consider to be a sin, but they don't? What happens then? If you got your standard for sin and I've got my standard for sin, that works great as long as I'm getting to do what I want to do. But it doesn't work real well when you do something against me that I think is sinful, but you don't. Well, now I'm all up in arms. That's sin. I don't think so. What do you do then? For example, what if your spouse believes that carrying on an intimate relationship with someone other than you is perfectly acceptable, but you do not? What if you find it utterly reprehensible? How do you justify your personal standard as the right standard if we each get to define our own personal standard for sin? How does that work? Because really, you, it doesn't. You don't have a leg to stand on, do you? It sounds great in theory until somebody does something against you that you don't like. And then you want to toss it. Well, okay, that's not a good, that doesn't work. What makes your definition correct and your spouse is incorrect, other than the fact that it doesn't match your definition? If we each have our own sliding scale of personal sin, it doesn't work. Isn't it funny how so many people are all for defining their own definition of sin, but they're not okay with someone else's definition of sin, especially when we think it doesn't work in our favor, and we don't like your definition. So neither our personal consciences nor our personal definitions of sin work out that well. They sound good in theory, but then when you go to live them out, practically they fall way short. Here's one more. The community determines what is sin and what is not sin. Well, you don't have to look very far back in history to tell you that that standard hasn't worked very well. 
I wouldn't want to have lived in Nazi Germany when they were defining the definition of sin, especially if I was Jewish. I wouldn't want to live in Imperial Japan. I wouldn't want to live in Vietnam or the Soviet Union or a host of other countries. Having the community decide what is sin and what is not has completely eradicated millions of people off the face of the earth for that very simple ideology. But not personally deciding or letting our own consciences, our own communities define what sin really is flies in the face of how the world thinks today, doesn't it? Because we, the world today wants to so desperately say, what I did was okay because it was okay with me. It's what I needed, and so it was all right, regardless of what God has to say. Is that not exactly what the Israelites are doing here? They have so bought into the world belief that they can define their own standard of sin, and God will be okay with it. But notice the text says it was evil in the sight of the Lord. And ultimately, beloved, that's the opinion that matters the most. We can justify our sin to each other. We can justify our sin. We can even try to fake ourselves out. But someday we'll all have to stand before a holy and righteous and perfect God and that won't fly, because there is only one standard for sin, and it's his, not ours. And rightfully so. You can see how terrible we muck that up, right? When we just we try to define it by everything but God's word. So if you can get past the fact that we're not really good definers of sin for ourselves or for others, then to whom should we look for the definition of sin? Well, clearly, the word of God, right? That's why he has revealed that to us. Sin is defined as God defines it, not how we personally define it, not how our consciences define it, not how our community defines it. What God defines as sin is sin, regardless of what the world says or the culture says or the so-called experts say. If God says it's sin, it's sin. End of story. No more debate. But that brings us to another facet about sin. Not only are we terrible at defining it, it's also very deceptive. Sin is very deceptive in our lives. Because we can be so blinded at how easily sin de deceives us and ensnares us into its trap. Just think about how easy how easily the Israelites were assimilated into a pagan culture and how quickly they abandoned God. Think how easily this just happened. So comfortable in their lifestyle, so comfortable with their new families, that they have completely reasoned for themselves that God is going to be okay with their actions, even though he specifically said, do not do this. If you do, you'll suffer the consequences. And yet here they are. See, in their own eyes, there really was nothing wrong with what they were doing. I'm sure there might have been a ping in their conscience, but at the conscious level of day-to-day -day living, they had little time and little guilt, and they had lots of explanations for why they were doing what they were doing was perfectly okay. But now the text does not tell us every rationale for their not caring, but what we do know is that whatever had decided they had decided was not evil was certainly evil in the eyes of God. That the text is very clear on. But God's not giving up on them. He's going to send them a deliverer to stop them from being completely assimilated into the Philistine culture. And we're going to look more into the, his life next week as we meet his parents, 
and see all the special things that God is doing to prepare Samson to be the deliverer of Israel, even though they don't think they need one. God is still going to anoint someone and give them all kinds of privileges and blessings to prepare them to do that. Things that could have and should have been of great advantage to him if he would only seek to walk with the Lord and be obedient to his will. He is called to be separate from Israel. Now think about that for a second. Israel's problem is that they have so blended in with the culture that you can't even tell they're God's people anymore. What is God's solution? He's going to say, even from before birth, I'm going to mark you as separate from everybody else. Even before that. I, matter of fact, so much so, I'm going to have your parents abide by something so that they won't violate that. And you don't even have a hint of this in your bloodstream while she's carrying you. That's how separate I want you to be. Because the answer to assimilation is separation. You have to be able to, you're in the world, but you're not of the world. So much so, listen, they were so assimilated, they didn't even recognize the depths of which they had become so assimilated. So much so, they're completely indifferent to the commands of God about not intermarrying and the disastrous effects it would have on Israel. They just don't care. And year after year, they gradually become more and more comfortable with the idea that their own definition of sin is far better than God's. And slowly but surely, they become more and more like the world and less and less like God's children. Didn't happen overnight. It was one compromise at a time, one compromise at a time, and then another, and then another, and then another. And before you know it, they look a lot more like the world than they do God's children. Now, that's very easy for us to identify with Israel, but I wonder if we too can be blinded by our own definitions of sin. If we too can be blinded by how deceptive sin is in our own lives. How we can get so comfortable with our own definition of sin that we can justify not following God's definition of sin. That we can be perfectly okay with that. How easily we can be blinded by our own materialism or our own pridefulness or our, our own idolatry that we don't even recognize how far we have drifted from God's word. I'll tell you this, beloved, it is far easier than we think. We start by making compromises from God's commands, start justifying why it's okay for us not to follow his word. Little compromise here, little there. Little compromise then with the culture. We get a little too much heat about this thing or that thing. So we better maybe shift our view over here so we don't get so much pressure. Before you know it, another compromise. Boy, you kind of look like the world. You're okay there. All that pressure goes away. Then compromises with our own self-reflection. We read God's word and we go, yeah, I know God wants me to do that. But he doesn't really want me to do that, does he? Because he ultimately just wants me to be happy. No, God wants you to be holy. That's what God wants you to be, holy. Happiness is a byproduct of holiness, not the other way around. And then we choose instead to justify why it's okay for us to do what we want to do, even though we know God's word says no. So before you know it, we are so assimilated into the world, so much so that we cannot tell the difference between the way we live our lives and the way the world lives our lives. And before you know it, the church looks like the world. It looks like a giant social club. 
like a Boys and Girls Club, like a YMCA. Before you know it, that's there's really no big difference between how the church lives its life and 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 just a group of people who gather together once a week and sing songs. And then when that happens, we've allowed idols and sin to become so prevalent in our lives that we are far outside the will of God because of our sin. And secondly, and I want you to think about this, when we allow that to happen, when we allow ourselves to be so worldly, we lose our witness in that community. Because we're not separate anymore. We just look like one of the other folks in there. There's nothing different about us than, than what they have everywhere else they go. Their work, their job, their school, it doesn't matter. We look exactly like them. So we need to do some we need to do some self-examination. Ask ourselves some tough questions here. In what areas of my life have I become looking more and more like the world than and less and less like what God says I should look like? Maybe it'd be a good idea for us to have an accountability partner, somebody who would love us enough to speak that kind of truth into our lives and say, you know, I love you, but you know, what you're doing right here looks an awful lot like what the world does. And less and less like what God says we should be doing. And then we need to listen. We need to put our pride aside so that we don't start compromising in little areas here and there. And we're going to see next week that God's first response to Israel's compromise and the world is to call a deliverer who's to be completely separate from the world. That's his antidote. And incidentally, that's our antidote as well. When we become so blended... God is going to he's going to send his word or he's going to bring somebody into your life and remind you, you are in this world, but you're not of this world. And your life should be reflective of where your home is, which is in heaven. Someone who's in the world but not of the world. And remarkably, isn't that God's same message for us today as it was back then? Beloved, we must all examine ourselves and make sure we truly understand that sin is what is sin in God's eyes, not what we determine to be sin in our own eyes. And once we do that, then we're on the right path of walking in obedience to him and accomplishing his will. Let's pray together, shall we? Heavenly Father, thank you again for the reminder, as we've got some background here on Samson tonight, of what was going on at that time, what was happening in that community. And Lord, it really hasn't changed even today. The pressure, Lord, the, how much easier it is for us to start looking more and more like the world as we compromise here and there. Maybe we're just trying to attract more people in. Maybe we're just trying to, to cut back on the amount of pressure or persecution. Maybe we just want to be liked more. Whatever the reason, Lord, for the compromise, convict us of that, Lord. And may we listen with an open heart. Whether it's from your word, Lord, or it's whether it's from your, a friend who shares the word, Lord, bring people into our lives who love us enough to hold us accountable, to remind us that the path with you is far greater than whatever the world has to offer. Help us, Lord, to not make little compromises all along the way, so much so that we're deceived by the sin that we're doing in your eyes. Father, thank you again for the challenge from your word. Send us home safely with your love. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's stand, shall we, as we close. Jesus is Lord of all.
tomorrow's all my past Jesus is Lord of all I've quit my struggles contentment at last Jesus is Lord of all King of kings Lord of Lords, Jesus is Lord of all. All my possessions and all my life, Jesus is Lord of all. All of my conflicts. All my thoughts, Jesus is Lord of all. Love wins the battles I could not have fought, Jesus is Lord of all. King of kings, Lord of lords, Jesus is Lord of all. All my possessions and all my life, Jesus is Lord of all. All of my longings, all my dreams, Jesus is Lord of all. All of my failures, His power redeems, Jesus is Lord of all. King of kings, Lord of lords, Jesus is Lord of all. All my possessions and all my life, Jesus is Lord of all. Amen. Bob, would you close us in prayer, brother?